Well, hey, everybody, welcome to another episode of Let's Read the Bible, a podcast where we go through the Bible book by book in a way that's deep, but also easy to understand. If you would like to follow along, you can download the YouVersion Bible app and subscribe to the Solid Life Whole Bible Reading Plan. We also have physical reading plans available in the lobby every Sunday. And as we regularly say, we would love for you to take some time to send us in any questions you may have throughout the reading uh, or that just come up as you're listening to some of us, write them down, send them in. You can send them in through email, info at grove.church. Uh, and typically every uh, the last Friday of every month is when we drop a podcast that takes some time to answer those questions that are sent in. So please and thank you. Keep doing that. Uh, but just to give you an update, uh, because of iHeart, for those of you who don't know what iHeart is, we take a week in our calendar uh, year through the summer as a church, and we strategically go out into our communities and serve different parks and recreation spots, different school districts. We throw block parties for elementary age kids. Uh, And so because iHeart was this last week, we are actually not going to be dropping a podcast on the last Friday of this month that will actually drop the beginning of August. Uh, So we apologize for the inconvenience of that, but because it was such an incredible week, we didn't have time to get to it, and we're not going to have time to get to it. So just to give you a heads up there. Yep, but don't worry, it will be coming. And with that, uh, let's go ahead and jump into this week's Bible Talk. So we've got we've got a lot ahead of us today. So we're going to make sure that uh, we kind of try and go through at a as a quickly as brisk. possible. It's true. Uh, also today we're introducing my favorite book of the Bible, but I saved that one for last. So no spoilers on this one. No spoilers. Wait till it happens. It's going to be awesome. If you could see Evan's face when he does it, he'll be really. Giddy. It's going to be meaningless. Okay, so we're going to get to uh, see what you did there. Thank you. Uh, the first letter that we're going to start off with today, or the first book of the Bible, is uh, the book of Second Peter. Um, again, we're reading through in the New Testament a lot of the different epistles or the letters of the different apostles, and Second Peter is the second letter uh, that the apostle Peter wrote. Now, it's written to most likely the same uh, the same churches that were supposed to get the first letter. So, if we remember, there's a region, uh, basically in northern Asia Minor, where there's a lot of these churches around. So, the letter of First Peter gets circulated a few years later. Uh, Peter writes his second letter to those churches, and it's actually kind of interesting because. Uh, this letter is, is written from Rome, and it's actually written about the same time that Paul wrote Second Timothy. And there's some interesting parallels here, whereas even though Second Peter is not a personal letter, it's meant to be circulated, um, both of these men are, are older men, and they're both um, – they're both pretty aware that they're they're coming to the end, that they're going to die. And, and if it, as a reminder of what's going on right now, uh, a man named Nero is the emperor of Rome, and Nero's Nero's just the worst. Like legitimately, he's a uh, he's he's psychotic. He's a bad guy. Yeah, not really, a great guy. Really evil bad guy. So he is uh, persecuting Christians. I would say in Rome during this time period is probably the worst persecution. Of especially of the early church, I, I would argue probably yeah. of the church in general. But all of these things are happening. Uh, Paul and Peter are leaders of the church, and they understand that uh, their their times on this earth are probably coming to an end. And so uh, Peter takes the time to sit down and really write kind of his his final thoughts. And where in Second Timothy we get um, Paul's final thoughts more in the sense of, you know, to one person in second Peter, we really get, uh, what are the last things that Peter would want to communicate to the, the capital C church, or in other words, like not just one church, but to the church in abroad. Um, and so one of the themes of it, and it's a theme of a lot of the later epistles. And what I mean by that is the epistles that are written later in time is a warring against false teachers. And it's kind of interesting to be able to look at the, um, the growth of the different epistles and the issues that they're talking about. Cause in the first epistles, there's a lot of basically talking about what the church should be like, how the church should behave, 
really laying out the gospel. And then when you get into the later epistles, it's a lot of, you know, you've believed these things and now people are coming in and they're telling, they're teaching false doctrine, they're teaching heresy. And it's the apostles warning about those different things. And and one of the interesting uh, false teachings that seems to have arisen is that the return of Christ was never going to happen. And so it's it's one of those interesting things where I think uh, today as the modern church, we have a full understanding that um, the return of Christ was not something that was going to imminently happen as far as like, you know, a lot of times people thought that Jesus was leaving, he ascended back to heaven. And I think it, it, I can't remember if it was first or second Thessalonians, but it was written a a decade after uh, the resurrection of Christ. And Paul's having to tell them like, Hey, um, like Jesus hasn't come back yet. Like it's, it's going to be, it's going to be a while. And so um, by the time Peter's coming around, this is about 30 or the, the letter of Peter's coming around. This is about 30 years after the resurrection of Christ. And the church is getting anxious. They're saying it hasn't happened yet. What's going to happen? And there's a whole group of false teachings coming in that's saying, you know, well, the resurrection or the return of Christ is never going to happen. And so Peter helps to uh, alleviate that. In fact, in Second Peter uh, chapter 3, verses 8 through 10, it says this, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. And so really, um, what Peter's talking about with the return of Christ is he's saying that it's it's not slow because God's just kind of taking his time for no reason. He's saying it's slow because God desires more and more people to come to repentance. He desires, I guess, I mean, and, and to put it uh, bluntly, he wants more people in heaven. He wants yeah. more people on the new heavens and new earth. He wants more people to worship him. And, and I, for one, you know, we're grateful because if Jesus came back in the decades afterwards, uh, like my family's from the Netherlands and Spain. So we probably wouldn't have, we, we wouldn't have gotten the message that early. Um, and then, I mean, geographically we're about as far away from uh, Israel as possible. So it's, it's a really beautiful thing that God has um, delayed the return of Christ, allowing for really just the door to be open for more and more people to be able to, to come to faith in him. And then the final thing he says is uh, that the return of Christ is kind of like the thief in the night. And, and what he means by that is not that it's a bad thing, but what he means is it's something where you're not going to see it coming. It's not something that we can necessarily um, expect, but really it's just saying live like it could happen at any time with the knowledge that, you know, if it doesn't happen, that's totally fine too, because we remember that God has his reasons. And whenever God chooses for the return of Christ to happen, uh, it's going to be a beautiful thing. Yeah. And I, I mean, I would even reiterate the idea. It's, it's, it's more an act of mercy of God delaying his return of Christ's return Yeah, because it is, it's that inclusion. We, like, he wants everyone to know his love and respond, which is why you and I have this great commission to be a part of. So, um, and then as we shift into the, the reading this week, uh, I want to take a moment and just highlight a passage in Proverbs. It's actually two verses in chapter 26 uh, because it has the appearance of contradiction. Uh, and I remember growing Ooh. up, I know, right? A little controversy. Uh, I remember growing up and, and talking to different uh, peers of mine in high school, and they would bring up this passage specifically, uh, but other passages talk about well, the Bible's contradicting itself. Read it here. Uh, and so I'm going to read it real quick, but then share a few thoughts about it. Uh, it says this in Proverbs chapter 26, verses four to five. It says, don't. Answer the foolish arguments of fools, or you will become as foolish as they are. 
Then it continues on. It says in verse five, be sure to answer the foolish arguments of fools or they will become wise in their own eyes. And it has this appearance of, of contradiction. And well, you said don't, but now you say do. Uh, and the, the, the only way that I can make sense of it and help you understand, it's not a contradictory statement. It's it's a, um, a circumstantial statement. And there's certain circumstances that we have to understand, like we shouldn't answer a fool according to his folly is another translation. We don't need to answer the foolish arguments. And the picture that I had was when I was a, a lot younger than I am now. I was probably 15, 16 years old. My nephew, uh, my oldest nephew, Ryan, when you listen to this, I shout out to you. Uh, but I remember you were like five or six and there was a, he would just start arguing with me. It's like a board game or whatever. I'm competitive, so I don't want to lose. And so my five or six-year-old nephew would argue with 15, whatever, 16-year-old me. And then I'd be getting frustrated because he'd be, he'd just, nah, Aaron, you're wrong. I'm like, I'm not wrong, Ryan. You're <laughs> wrong. Like, you have no clue about. And I would legitimately get frustrated. And my mom, I remember vividly, my mom told, would, would often remind me, like, Aaron, how old are you? Well, I'm 15. Well, then act like it. But he's wrong. Aaron, he's too young to understand. And all of a sudden, I really became, I felt really foolish. Uh, and in hindsight, 30 something or now I'm 35 years old, I realized, oh, yeah, I was a fool because I'm literally stooping down to a level that's unnecessary because the argument doesn't matter. And it's, it's so when he, when the problem, when Solomon and the Proverbs are, are talking about don't answer foolish arguments and then answer foolish arguments, it really comes down to circumstantial and content. What's the argument about? Because then he says, be sure to answer foolish arguments the foolish arguments of fools or to become wise in their own eyes. Yeah. There is a need for rebuke when, when someone is starting to, to mouth off or say something, they know definitively, I mean, let's go Jesus for a second. They know definitively like Jesus was this and this and this and this. And all of a sudden you realize, well, that's not right. That, that you're actually, you're actually being foolish. He needs to, that individual needs to be rebuked. I say he, because I'm a God, but the individual needs to have a loving rebuke, not like a shutdown. You're an idiot but a loving rebuke and correction because then there's also the humility. There's the pride issue that if we think we know everything um, that it comes down to. And so the thing we have to understand in reading scripture is we have to pause and really wrestle through what is it actually saying? Uh, and this picture is Proverbs in particular. Yes, absolutely. I found myself even reading this last couple of weeks. I'm just kind of reading quickly through them until all of a sudden I catch myself like, nope, just stop, read these statements. And so it's just an interesting contradiction that's not a contradiction because there's a time to answer a fool to his folly and there's a time not to. And it just depends on the context. So Yeah, it reminds me, I'm kind of a... I'm it's a like po- yours and mine arguments. There you go. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a bit of a political junkie and it always makes me think of um, like one of the major rules of if you're in a debate, and I guess this isn't just politics, it's kind of just in general, is if uh, if someone loses their cool and starts attacking you, you don't lose your cool because if you stoop to that level, then you basically you've lost in that moment. But even if someone's making good points, but it looks like they've just basically, if they're acting foolish, if you don't look like you're stooping to their level, you'll win, even if you're kind of wrong in that instance. So it's That's true. Yeah. It's just an interesting thing to look at. Uh, so moving on though, uh, we're going to introduce the book of first John. And so uh, this is one of five books in the new Testament that John has written, which is funny. Cause I, th- I feel like a, uh, Quietly, John actually contributes a lot to the New Testament. We don't necessarily talk about it. Paul um, gets all the credit. <laughs> what about John? Um, but uh, what was I going to say? Oh, so yeah, we have the Gospel of John, the Book of Revelation, and then we also have three letters uh, that John wrote. And so we're going to go through those uh, first John this week, and then next week we're going to talk about second and third John. Both of those are one chapter wonders. So if you want to feel good about reading a whole book of the Bible in a day, you can do those. Um, but the letter is written. It's dated to about 80 uh, AD, 
85 uh, through 95. And so at this point, John is very old. Uh, we know that John is the youngest of the disciples. And so let's, if we estimate that, say he's in his early 20s, um, around when Jesus, let's say he's 23, when Jesus resurrects. So this would put him to be at about uh, in his late 70s is when all this is yeah, going so on. So he would need the face app at this time. He would, you know, he is fully, he is fully old. Um, and what I love about, what I love about this is it's, it's really the letters of John late in his life are very reflective. And what I mean by that mm-hmm. is, is John has outlived all of the disciples at this point, um, all of the disciples. And we don't, I don't know necessarily if John was aware of all of it, but um, we know that John is the only disciple who did not die a martyr's death. Or in other words, he was not killed uh, for preaching the gospel. He's they tried to, yeah, they tried to boil him alive. Didn't work. So, which, Man, that would suck. Um, but and so yeah. he's he's exiled to Patmos. Uh, we don't know where or when uh, John wrote this specifically. Again, we have that basic. It's within this decade, probably. Um, and we don't. The other thing that's interesting is we don't know to whom this letter is written. Um, so you know, with Peter, he outlines you know to the churches in this area, and uh, with a lot of other letters, with Paul, he specifically names churches. With John, um, clearly, this was meant to be a letter that was circulated around a lot of churches, which mm-hmm. is why he wouldn't uh, directly. Um, address it, unlike second and third John, which are clearly two different people, so or at least to a church and to a person. So um, that's one of those interesting things. And then the message of this book is actually kind of an interesting contrast uh, to Second Peter, uh, where Second Peter he's reminding Christians about, hey, like right now we're experiencing extreme persecution, but remember that our hope is not necessarily just what's in this world. Our hope is really in the return of Christ and the fact that we will be in relationship with God in the new heaven and the new earth, um, which is absolutely true. And then first John is kind of taking the uh, flip side of the coin, if that will, where he's not focusing so much on the future hope of the Christian, but he's focusing on um, the beauty in the gospel of the book gospel in our everyday lives, the beauty of relationship with Jesus in our everyday lives. And so when you're reading through first John, um, a lot of the things that you're going to read about are like, like the most famous part of First John is um, the ch- the um, four seven through eight, where he just talks about how we're called to love each other, and that anyone who claims to know God but does not love is a liar. And so it's a really it's a really powerful message. And it's a really important reminder about how we as Christians are called um, to treat other Christians, but how we're also called to treat everyone else. And then John, just like Peter. Uh, takes the time to rebuke false teachers. And so, in the churches that John is writing to, and again, this is about 20 years after Second Peter, so it could be similar churches, it could be completely different churches, um, but there's evidently some type of heresy that's popping up where they're saying that Jesus was not a physical being, uh, but he was a spiritual one. And I didn't grab my notes on this, but I believe that's the Gnostic heresy, and that comes into play um, for about the next 200 years, I think it's mm-hmm. really popular. Um, if you know of like the gospel of Thomas is a Gnostic gospel. And what that means is people a uh, hundred, a hundred years after uh, Jesus or after even Thomas died, wrote the gospel in his name. And so that's kind of where a lot of the fa- false gospels that you'll see pop up are what they're called Gnostic gospels. And they're, they're meant uh, to basically distract away from the main core themes of Christianity. And they bring in their own kind of weird um, ideas about how the physical nature is bad. The spiritual nature is good. Um, I think there's even some stuff about how the God of the old Testament is evil and the God of the new Testament is good. And they're fighting all the time. So, I mean, it's interesting stuff. None of it's true. Well, new Testament wins because Jesus. So bam, 
there you go. Uh, but yeah, so that is that is the book of First John. Yeah, and I think it's it's going to be interesting to note and see throughout the epistles, especially some of the ones we've already highlighted, and we'll continue to highlight is false teachings and false prophets. That's a very big. Uh, point of contention. That's a very big reality in the New Testament era because there's constant attack and constant, you know, we even face it today. And so it yeah. is going to be a regular theme uh, to pay attention to because there is a value and a need for you and I as followers of Christ to be uh, rooted and established in God's word well so that we understand truth and we can discern truth from lie. And that's a lot of the the heart behind this podcast too, is don't just take our words for it. Like the goal of this is that you can take mine. <laughs> but the, the goal of it is that we're all reading the Bible together. And um, the, the, the passage escapes me from where it's actually from, but uh, I believe it's Paul talks about how it's important to uh, test what your teachers are saying. Like, yeah. don't just take our word for it, go back to scripture and make sure that what we're saying is actually. Um, Wasn't it about the Maccabees? No. Who was that about? I don't remember. Oh, sorry. See, now we just look dumb. No, it's okay. It's in there, though. We've looked dumb before. <laughs> uh, but I believe it's, a, it's, a, it's an ax. Like, the, one of the things that they, Paul, like, one of the interactions they had with Paul was literally they would listen to what was being preached and they would go back and search scriptures to, to verify its truth and authenticity. And that's, that's, the ten, that's, that's the reality we should be living on on a regular basis. Um, one of the other things that I'm actually looking forward to uh, that we get to read this week is, is a psalm that I think is um, often overlooked um, because Jesus refers to it on the cross. Uh, and that's in Psalm 31, uh, verse 5. This this verse is very familiar to a lot of us because we remember some of the last words that Jesus says, and he says, into your hands I commit my spirit. Um, and it's in, we actually see Jesus quoting this psalm, referring back to the psalm of Luke 23. And the interesting thing about when psalms are quoted or used in the New Testament, the majority of the time, I can't say 100% of the time because I didn't write it, but the majority of the time, it was a reference to the entire Psalm, not just a passage of scripture from the Psalm, if that makes sense. Uh, and so I thought it was really interesting uh, as I was reading it today. I'm like, oh, I remember that verse. And I remember when Jesus says it, he's actually wanting to refer back to this Psalm in uh, Psalm 31. Uh, and so it's interesting as you re- as you get to read it this coming week, uh, I would encourage you to, to to pause and reflect a little bit on what Jesus is alluding to through the statement, into your hands I commit my spirit in verse 5. Then it continues on in verse 6 through 10. It says this, I hate those who worship idols. I trust in the Lord. Uh, and I'll say this one last thing real quick. As I'm rereading this, I remember thinking about, okay, if Jesus is on the cross and he refers to this psalm, uh, what would he be thinking and referring to, referencing for God's people? Because they they would recognize this psalm from the childhood. They they learned the Old Testament. They right. learned and were, were they knew what the Psalms were. So he, so Jesus says this Psalm, this reference in 31.5, but then it, the Psalm continues and says, I will be glad and rejoice in your unfailing love, for you have seen my troubles and you care about the anguish of my soul. And I just have this picture of Jesus on the cross, like referencing and, and hinting at this Psalm. It says, you have not handed me over to my enemies, but have set me in a safe place. How incredibly hopeful that is. And I can't imagine referring to that on that cross. He says, have mercy on me, Lord, for I'm in distress. Tears blur my eyes. My body and soul are withering away. I am dying from grief. My years are shortened by sadness. Sin has drained my strength. I am wasting away from within. Uh, and for me, as I'm reading this, and I would encourage you as you're reading it this week, uh, be, remind, be reminded of Jesus on the cross. He refers to this psalm for a reason because he's trying to draw God's people back to understand and remember God's word. And so I think it's such a beautiful, beautiful reminder on that cross for us. Yeah, no, it's, it's always, um, 
I love the way that the New Testament constantly echoes the Old Testament. And I think one of the traps that we can fall into as Christians is kind of thinking like, well, the New Testament's ours and the Old Testament's kind of just, yeah. you know, it's in the past. I don't need to read the Old Testament because I'm a New Testament. Yeah. And that's where even, um, uh, I would encourage you, if you don't have a study Bible, get a study Bible. They're great. Um, I mean, I would recommend the ESV study Bible, but there's yeah. a lot of really there's good ones. There's a couple ones other ones, yeah, too. Send in a question. What one would we recommend? And Evan and I will come with our favorite there you ones. Go. But uh, in the margins uh, in the New Testament books specifically, what you'll see is that there will be little notes, and then when you see a phrase, it'll show what out of the Old Testament it's echoing. And it's, mm-hmm. it's oftentimes really enlightening. Yeah. Um, but speaking of the Old Testament, so we're going to get into our actual Old Testament books. Uh, this well, Psalm, Psalms was Se- that segue was dumb, and I apologize. So <laughs> D- deleted. No one remembers that. Oh, jeez. Um, so, anyways, this week we are starting. Uh, we're actually starting and finishing uh, the book of Song of Solomon. And so this is well, your the, Bible might call it Song of Songs. Just that's so, true. It's the I, same book, not a different translation. That was in my notes, and now yeah, stole your spoiled thunder. it. Um, but yeah, the Song of Solomon is the uh, the fourth the third wisdom book that Solomon had a hand in that we're reading through. And so again, he had some of the Psalms, uh, but then he's most famous for Proverbs, the Song of Solomon, and for uh, our mystery book that's coming up at the end of the podcast. It's, it's Ecclesiastes. But anyway. Oh, spoiler. Um, but the Song of Solomon is a really interesting um, – it's a really interesting book. And it's kind of – it's one of the more controversial books of the Bible just because um, – well, I guess just to get into it. So it's it's a, just, it's a description – of a loving, um, basically love between mar- a husband and wife. Yeah, a marital relationship. Erotic, it starts it's... off with uh, it starts off with courtship. It moves into uh, very detailed descriptions of uh, poetic descriptions, granted, but yes. uh, of marital intimacy and all those different things. And so, um, a lot of times, it's it's a weird book to uh, even preach through. I think I've only seen it preached through like once when I like it, when I looked like other people's sermons and stuff like that. It's just an interesting uh, book to talk about. But I've only ever used one verse out of the book of Song of Songs to preach from. There you go. Um, but at the same time, I actually do think it's a very uh, important book for us mm-hmm. to talk about. And so uh, just a few quick things just to kind of introduce the book and the idea of it. Uh, like Aaron said, in your Bible, it might be called the Song of Songs. Uh, I believe the actual direct... Hebrew translation is the song of songs that is Solomon's song. So that's why that's why they break it up a little bit and it can be different things. Um, the book is most likely written by Solomon. Uh, we say that because in, uh, in the book of Kings, we get references to the fact that Solomon was a songwriter and that he wrote hundreds of songs, I believe is what it says. Um, so we would assume that uh, this particular song that he wrote is actually uh, inspired. However, it is also possible, uh, some people posit that it wasn't written by Solomon, but rather it was written either about Solomon or dedicated to Solomon, which is why it would be, you know, that is Solomon. interesting book to dedicate to someone. It, that's true. Very, very but true. That's beside the point. Um, and then, yeah, like we talked about, the book is a celebration of romantic love, uh, marriage, and sexual in- intimacy. Uh, and then Song of Solomon is is poetic in yeah. its nature. So when you're reading through it, um, you'll notice like everything is kind of a poetic description of what's going on. It can be uh, – Don't use them as compliments. Don't use <laughs> – a few years ago, this is a total side note, but you're welcome. Uh, a few years ago, I did uh, Valentine's to the church staff, and all of them were uh, quotes from Song of Solomon. Oh yeah, it was awesome. Like your um, your nose is like a great tower, or your hair is like a flock of goats descending down the hills of Gilead. There's some great. <laughs> yeah, not all of the compliments work for today. I, yeah, I don't know if your your spouse is going to enjoy them, but you can give them a shot if you want to. 
Yeah. Uh, but, but anyway, speaking of uh, study Bibles, what, kind of what we talked about a little while ago, um, this is a great book if you have either a commentary or if you want to look it up. It's a great thing to actually have a companion thing to read along with it because uh, the book is very poetic. It can be kind of hard to get through exactly like, well, what are we talking about as far as the different imagery goes? Um, but at the end of the day, the Song of Solomon is a book that celebrates God's plan for marriage and intimacy. And what I mean by that is you'll see a lot of the themes of the book. Um, one of the most famous verses from it is, I'm guessing this is the verse you actually use, is don't awaken love before uh, before it is ready. Yep. And so... Um, it's a great verse. Yeah. And, and when you break down the Song of Solomon and kind of like um, look at its different areas... The first is really this kind of courtship where uh, the the woman character is seeking after is seeking after Solomon. There's kind of this interplay before them, and there's a wedding, and then it kind of goes into just the relationship evolving from there. But it's just a it's a beautiful and poetic look at at love and really a celebration of. And, and I, I want to be very careful when I say it's a celebration of God's plan for uh, for yeah. marriage and intimacy, That's and it point. shows how beautiful. Um, when we obey the confines of, of what God has structured around, here's what marriage should look like, here's what intimacy should look like, and when we actually uh, participate within those bounds, what a beautiful gift it really is to, to mankind. Yeah, and I remember I remember years ago thinking or hearing, uh, I think it was actually while I was at Northwest studying to be a pastor, um, that they had mentioned uh, in in the Jewish era, they will actually re- like refrain for these young teenage boys from reading the book of Song of Solomon, or however the Hebrew actual translation is, um, but because they they were not mature enough or ready enough to be able to understand and and read the book of Song of Songs, because it can be and is so erotic at times right. when it talks about the deep intimacy and love between a husband and wife, and so uh, it is something to be cautious about. It is something to to not you know to not just flippantly read, but there is so much depth and vibrancy and meaning to it. So. Uh, definitely, definitely a good book, and we'll have some fun reading it this week, I think. Um, but as we continue on reading, uh, the other one of the other books we're going to be able to read for a couple chapters this coming week, or this week actually, is Luke 16 and 17. And I just want to take a moment and talk out of Luke 16 uh, as a, about the shrewd manager. It's actually the first uh, dozen or so verses in, in Luke chapter 16, and it's the story of about a manager who gets uh, is in essence called out or found out that he's wasting his his owner's money and his owner comes to him and fires him and then he freaks out he's like i'm way too uh i have no strength to dig ditches i'm way too prideful to beg so how am i going to survive how am i going to have a place to live how am i going to have a roof over my head uh and so he has this brilliant idea where he actually calls in people that owe his owner uh money or resources they're in debt to the owner and then he starts having all of their, like, you know, 800 gallon or gallons of oil, olive oil to the owner, quickly change the, 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 or the debt to 400. Um, and at, in order to buy favor, in order to guarantee that these individuals, he's in essence relieving a load and a heavy amount of debt. So that way he kind of has protection and a place to stay. I'm kind of stealing from the master, too. Not kind of stealing, like actually bit, yeah. stealing from the master I mean, is interesting. Shortchanging is the owner a little bit. And so, uh, but it's interesting because this is this is actually a parable Jesus is sharing and, and teaching from. And in verse 9, it, it kind of gives the lesson. This is the point. And now, not often does Jesus do this. He doesn't often follow up a story with the point uh, when he teaches a parable. Sometimes he just leaves it open-ended. And then the disciples come to him and probably say, hey, what does that mean? Uh, and so, but Jesus says this in verse 9 of chapter 16. He says this, here's the lesson. Use your worldly resources to benefit others and make friends. 
Then when your possessions are gone, they will welcome you to an eternal home. If you are faithful in the little things, you will be faithful in large ones. But if you're dishonest in little things, you won't be honest with greater responsibilities. And if you are untrustworthy about worldly wealth, who will trust you with the true riches of heaven? And if you're not faithful with other people's things, why should you be trusted with your own things? No one can serve two masters. Now, this is a verse we hear often, even in the book of Matthew, in a little bit different context. But he says, no one can serve two masters, for you will hate one and love the other. You will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and be enslaved to money. And it's an interesting tension because on one hand, it's like, well, the, this this manager is kind of dishonest and he's taking advantage of his position to earn favor outside of his job. Once he's fired and he doesn't have a place, he's, he's literally doing it to make sure that he has a home and people will invite him into their homes. Um, but it's, it's also interesting where Jesus says, listen, be shrewd. I mean, there's another verse and I actually should have looked it up and I didn't. I'm sorry. But it says, like, be shrewd as a serpent and gentle as a dove. There is something to be said. And I referenced this back when we were talking about David and his his pretending to be mad to to gain asylum and safety from a king who isn't that King David. Oh, no, he's just a madman. I don't need another madman because David pretended to be crazy. Uh, but there is something to be said about how are we ha- or handling and, and stewarding the resources God has given us? Are we being shrewd and intentional? Uh, I mean, Jesus even says, like, I'm just losing it. Um, use your possessions to benefit others and make friends. That's what Christ did with his influence. That's what Christ did with this. And so it's just an interesting, it's, it's, it's an interesting point when it comes to resources, because it's not just a financial conversation. It's also an influence. He uses his position and influence uh, for the better of people. Uh, and so it's just, yeah, I just, I just thought it was really interesting because Jesus is literally teaching a parable about someone who is in essence, in essence, not just wasting his master's money, which is in and of itself, how are we managing what God has given us with our life, our influence, our breath, our talent, our gifts, are we are we wasting them? But there's also the tension of like live shrewdly, live in a way that sets you up for success in eternity, which is what he refers to as an eternal home. So yeah. it's just interesting. No, it's, it's one of the uh, it's one of the most uh, difficult parables to nail down exactly how everything fits in together. So uh, yeah, it's a, it's a fun one to study for sure. Um, so our final book that we're going to be talking about today is the book of Ecclesiastes, which is, um, as far as chronologically, it's the last of the wisdom books that Solomon contributes to. Um, a couple quick things about the book. Um, again, this is one. This is really one of my favorite books, um, and I remember a huge reason why I got into it is I was a teenager. Um, I was really making the effort to read through the Bible. Uh, on my own for the first time, and I got to uh, I got to Ecclesiastes, and the opening line is um, "Vanity of vanities, all is vanity and striving after the wind." And I was like, "Well, this is interesting." And then, kind of like when you're reading through it, um, it really is this no holds barred look at life without God and and the dangers of nihilism. And what I mean by um, nihilism is basically this. This idea that life has no purpose, life has no meaning, um, basically just and, – and this would come into kind of like hedonism, I guess, as well, is just live in the pursuit of your own pleasures, do whatever makes you happy, and then at the end of the day, you'll die and no one's going to remember you. That's kind of what um, Ecclesiastes is taking an honest look at that uh, part of life. Um, and what's interesting about it is if you'll remember during our Solomon retrospective that we did, um, we talked about how – um, Solomon had really high highs and really low lows. And, mm-hmm. and most of his lows are um, the pursuit of just pleasure to a maximum, to a maximum that we can't even imagine today, right? Like Solomon is one of the wealthiest men in the world. He's definitely the wealthiest man around 
um, at mm -hmm. the time. And he uses money to just get whatever he wants. And when we read through Ecclesiastes, he actually is going to describe all these different things. He says, you know, I lived as a rich man and I found that it was all meaningless. I, le I lived as a poor man and it was all meaningless. He goes, I, you know, if if you read through like the idea of his relationship with one person in song in, this, in song of Solomon is a beautiful relationship, but we also have to remember that Solomon married, I think it was like three hundred women. Uh, over he had he had a ton of wine, almost one per day of the year. Um, but which is a weird way to look at it. It's totally weird. Um, but you see, like just basically what you see in Ecclesiastes is these extremes that Solomon is going to to basically just make himself. Uh, feel good mm -hmm. and at the end of the day what he lands on is that all of it is meaningless without god and so and then what's interesting about the book is it doesn't explicitly say like over and over again that life is meaningless and then put comma without god it really just talks about how the meaninglessness of life uh one of my favorite things is that <laughs> one of my favorite passages is um you'll work hard and you'll build up um Basic, I'm paraphrasing, but you'll build up your resources and leave an inheritance to your kid. Um, but if your kid's a moron and squanders it, there's nothing you can do about it because you're dead already. <laughs> it's just like, it's just kind of this brutal look at uh, at life and legacy and, and all of these different things. Um, but at the end of Ecclesiastes, and, and we'll talk about this a little bit more next week when we're actually going through a lot of the book, um, he really frames out what he's talking about. Or in other words, a lot of a lot of the book deals with the fact that there seem there is seemingly no justice in the world that people do evil things and a lot of the times they just get away with it and that's the way it is um and yet like the, something we can all come up with yeah that's fair um but when we look at the ending verses of Ecclesiastes, it kind of addresses that, and then it really ties together the whole book extremely well. Because if the first verse is saying that life is completely meaningless, that's all like striving after the wind, the last two verses say this. So it's Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 13 through 14. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. And the idea of it is really this, we may think that life has no purpose. And if we're really just looking at it through through the lens that Solomon is looking at it, it can look like life is just kind of meaningless. Like we always it's talk true. about, you know, bad things happen to good people, which there's some theological issues with that. But overall, like people who we would consider good, like bad things happen to them. How can we explain the evil that's happened in our lives? And, and really what Ecclesiastes is about is that there is a God who is sovereign over everything, and that if we don't accept that that is the truth, if we don't live our lives with the commands of God in our mind, and, and with us as Christians, with the gospel in mind, or in other words, the mercy and the forgiveness that Jesus offers, all of life is like striving after the wind, is uh, the the poetic way that Solomon describes it. And it's a really, it's a really honestly brutal, but at the same time beautiful look at um at what life would be like without God. And that's why I like it so much. Well, it's um, really heavy. Yeah, it when, is. When you say striving after them, the first thing I think about is uh, Pocahontas, but that's, <laughs> that's one thing. But the other thing too Not is- Not painting it, with the colors of the wind. Oh, got it. Have you ever seen, anyways. Um, but it's also a very heavy statement. Like it really is something to think about, like the end of the matter and all of these things that I've pursued and all of these things that I've found, like the deepest, the wholest duty of man is to fear God and keep his commandments. Right. That's it. Like that, that's heavy. Well, but then it's not a, like, it's, it's such a powerful and interesting thing. And Solomon, I mean, if you put yourselves in your, 
in your parents' shoes as a dad or, or other things I wish my kids would learn that I didn't, I didn't recognize or care to learn at their age and when they're getting older. But if I'm being honest, they're probably not going to listen to half of it. And it's much the same way. Solomon can be that father figure. It's like, hey, listen to the things that I've learned from the life that I've lived. But we have an opportunity to either learn from it or disregard it. And how often do I actually disregard it when I should be learning from it? So, right. But it's definitely a heavy statement. And there's an interesting um, – and maybe Solomon, even when he was writing Ecclesiastes, had a good inkling of what was going to happen because Solomon's whole reign – and I'll end with this word. Sorry, we're a little bit over time, but we had a lot to get to this week. Solomon spends his entire reign building up the kingdom of Israel, and he builds the temple, and he makes – it. at this point, Israel is in its golden age. It has the most land, mm-hmm. I believe, that's ever going to have. The kingdom's united. Um, and then just like he says in Ecclesiastes, he dies, he leaves the inheritance to his son, and his son almost immediately screws it up, Swamp and the kingdom's divided, and, and it's gone forever. So – um, yeah, I think Solomon's life is obviously echoed in Ecclesiastes because he's talking about so many things that he does. Um, but at the same time, it's a great reminder for us today to never lose sight of God in the midst of yeah, in the midst of life. Well, that wraps it up for another episode of Let's Read the Bible. Uh, just a reminder that we are a podcast of the Grove Church, but we're not the only podcast of the Grove Church. If you want to check out all of our other resources, they are available at grove.church. Um, and also do us a favor, leave us a review on five whatever stars. five stars, please. On um, whatever uh, on whatever platform you're listening on, it helps get the podcast out there uh, to new people and allows us to be able to grow this community of people reading the Bible together. Shout out to Kentucky! Thank you, Kentucky. Uh, with that being said, we will see you all next week.